From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, Governor Kemp will share details of his legislative agenda when he gives his State of the State speech this morning. Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein join us from the Capitol with a preview. I'm Patricia Murphy. With an enormous budget surplus at his disposal, the governor will lay out plans for $2 billion in new spending on schools and infrastructure. Then, Patricia and I got insights into House Speaker John Burns' plans for this legislative session. We'll share that conversation. I'm Greg Bluestein. Later, we'll look at the debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the final GOP debate before Iowa voters head to caucuses Monday night. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Patricia, there's always a lot of pomp and circumstance surrounding a state of the state speech. And of course, we all also hope some substance in what the governor has to say as well. Oh, yes. We've seen an advanced copy of the governor's speech, so we know there will be loads of substance, so much substance. There will be long periods of quiet, <laughs> slight boredom, I'm sure, among the members. Um, but yeah, this is always a chance for lawmakers and the governor, especially Republican lawmakers and the governor, to get on the same page, to hear his priorities, to hear his vision for the direction um, of the legislative session, but also really of the rest of his term. Because now that we're past um, sort of the, the main elections of his career, as far as we know, this is the type of um, moment when a governor sets his kind of career agenda, and that's what we're expecting. Greg, we ought to get into a little bit about what we expect the governor to say. But uh, first, uh, this is he is the single most popular uh, elected official in the state of Georgia by a wide margin. So I assume that the usual ovation that a governor gets from the Senate and the House, both while they all come into the House chamber, will be more sustained and maybe more enthusiastic than uh, uh, usual. Because while they don't all agree with Governor Kemp on every issue, especially over on the Senate side, he's had an extraordinary run. Yeah, there'll be genuine adulation from Republicans. There might be more respectful applause from Democrats. <laughs> and of course, there'll be a lot of others in the chamber. There'll be judges. There'll be there'll be spouses of some. There'll be special guests who are invited. Uh, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens will be in the uh, the legislative chamber as well. 
Um, you know, he's had a partner, even though he's a Democrat, he's had, he's forged a partnership with the governor. They've reset the city state relationships after some th- more thornier back and forth between Governor Kemp and uh, Mayor Dickens' predecessor, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Um, all right. So start us off, Greg. What uh, do we imagine are going to be the highlights, the big items that the governor will talk about? Well, this is a really budget-driven session, right, for, for the governor. His agenda is is primarily budget-driven, and there's a good reason for that. There's $16 billion in reserves, and not all of it's going to be spent, of course, but he has billions of dollars to spend um, and, and to line out those priorities. And we already heard just yesterday $2 billion in spending on infrastructure, on sewers, on a new medical school in Athens, a new dental school in Savannah. These are big, big ticket items that alone could carry headlines. And in in the case of yesterday, you know, they're barely in a story because there's so many other major, major significant uh, projects that are underway. Um, So I expect more on the budget. Um, you know, he, he's he's hinted about more uh, bigger raises for state public employees. Teachers could get another raise. Law enforcement could get another raise. Um, so so those are some of the issues we could see. But also in terms of his policy and his tone, one thing to remember is that Governor Kemp has basically never left the campaign trail. And I wouldn't be shocked to continue to hear him um, using, you know, very politicized rhetoric as he's talking about what Georgia's done in contrasting with what he believes or what he sees as the disastrous policies of of Washington. Of course, Democrats have a very different view of that, but I expect to continue to see the governor kind of draw that contrast between what he views as bad policies in Washington and good policies in Georgia. Patricia, what caught your eye when you got a chance to look over the speech? I know it's embargoed, but we have you have some thoughts about uh, what you expect to hear him say. Well, so this is, um, I would say it strikes me as sort of the sophomore year of his multi-year effort to attract more jobs to Georgia last year and the year before. It was all about bringing these big, big companies to the state to invest in humongous factories. So anybody who drives on I-16 towards Savannah will see this. It's basically a miniature city that has been stood up um, outside of Savannah by Hyundai, which will build its EV plant there. Rivian has a massive plant going in um, near Madison, Georgia. Uh, Other very large, large manufacturing plants are coming into Georgia. And then also when you drive around the state, you see uh, really big warehouses, all of that has to do with Kemp's effort to sort of uh, jumpstart and expand manufacturing. That's going to mean thousands of new people moving to the state. It means thousands of new trucks, hundreds of thousands of new trucks moving in and around the state to get from the Georgia ports for importing and exporting to these factories, to these warehouses. And so you see all of these um, pieces. When you talk about infrastructure, you talk about housing or healthcare. When I go to these small towns during the summer, they're excited about the factories, but they don't have the water systems to have new developments and um, new subdivisions. They don't have the roads to get people from the little towns to the factories. Um, they don't want those huge trucks on their little town roads. So the Kemp and the legislature now have to backfill or prepare for the growth that they have attracted. And that's what all of this looks like to me. It's like 
you know, sounds like bureaucratic terms, infrastructure, housing, schools, but it's all about all of those new people that want to come here and having make Georgia their homes. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, it, it's you've just uh, laid out the case for why there's a two billion dollar plan to improve infrastructure in many parts of of, of the state. Um, uh, Greg, you're the University of Georgia graduate, so I just go back a step. I, I'm not clear on the um, status of a medical school at the University of Georgia, a $50 million uh, uh, building that were, or, or center that will go up. What, what's the history of that, and where does University of Georgia stand when it came to medical schools? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, consider it sort of a turf war. Um, Augusta Medical College of Georgia, which is in Augusta, has, has long been a point of pride that they are the home to the state's public medical school. Um, and, and, and Augusta politicians and powers that be have resisted kind of spreading and adding new, there's, there's several private medical schools in Georgia, but they've resisted building a new public medical school. Instead, MCG Medical College of Georgia has had programs in other parts of the state, but, but still under the umbrella of MCG. So this is a huge step for UGA and one that as administrators there have long wanted, right? Um, and they've appealed to, to to friendly lawmakers and to friendly governors in the past, um, but Augusta area lawmakers have fought it tooth and nail. And now there might be an opening. You know, you're in the second term of Governor Kemp's agenda. He has money to spend. This is a fifty million dollar, um, I, I think, starting fee. I, don't, I think I think in the end it'll cost a lot more than that, but a fifty million dollar starting fee. Um, and you've got a governor who's who is in Athens, whose whose hometown is Athens, who's long seen and heard about the problems uh, with uh, with you know with that turf war. But also, you do have a genuine shortage of medical professionals in Georgia, and this can be tied to that. You know, uh, on the show yesterday, we talked a little about tort reform and and all the the, the issues involving the litigation. But when it, when it boils down to it is a need for what doctors say and what medical groups say is a need to get more healthcare professionals to staff some of these hospitals, to staff some of these healthcare facilities, to raise our standard of living and our quality of life in Georgia. And and the supporters of this project, which will cross party lines, will say that that building a new medical school at the University of Georgia will help do that. And Patricia, it also seems to me that it accomplishes two important factors for Governor Kemp himself. Number one, as Greg points out, he wants this to be a project in his hometown of Athens. Governors always want to do what they can to help their uh, constituents back in their hometowns. But it's also part of building a legacy beyond his tenure as governor. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about second term governors, we always ask, what's the legacy going to be? What are these next three years? What's he going to have to show for what he did and who he was. And so this is a way that he can kind of continue to show this is a this is a big ticket item. People will always remember that he was the governor who created the med school at the University of Georgia. And I've got to tell you, I know a lot of med students who would love to go to school in Athens <laughs> instead of Augusta, but just because Augusta is so difficult to commute to, if you have residencies and internships elsewhere closer to Atlanta, it, it they would love a second option for a public university um, uh, med school. Also, let's talk about Speaker John Burns. The dental school 
is now mm-hmm. going in at Georgia Southern. That is a huge addition. Um, Governor, Governor, Speaker Burns, of course, is an alum of Georgia Southern. He lives in Southeast Georgia. Um, he's very, very close with that school. It's not an accident or a mistake that it's going in down there, but there is also a dental shortage. And so all of these things, when you have a growing state and a growing population, you need to backfill all of these services. And particularly in rural Georgia, we have talked to so many people. There is no OBGYN in their um, county. We have a maternal mortality crisis happening right now. These are all real, real emergent problems. We, the state needs to backfill what's missing, but also prepare and make them make this a state where people can live anywhere, not just Atlanta, because that's where all the big hospitals are. Patricia, I have such an intense phobia about going to the dentist that I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> the dental school because it just gives me the shivers to even think about a dental school. But um, <laughs> Patricia, let's move on beyond my own personal problems. Um, Obviously, um, I know we're going to listen to your conversation with John Burns in a little while, and that one of the things he did address was, um, you know, Medicaid expansion. I assume that we're not likely to hear Governor Kemp talk about Medicaid expansion today, or am I wrong? You're you're right. Uh (laughs) <laughs> yes, I don't expect him to talk about Medicaid expansion. To to Greg's point, Governor Kemp, although he's in this second, this less political second term, he's never left the campaign trail. Expanding Obamacare in Georgia has always been a no go. But we they hear the calls, not just from Democrats, but from their own constituents. Like we need an answer. We need more options for healthcare people. If you don't make enough money to pay for um, Obamacare, even with the subsidies, um, and you make too much for Medicaid, there's just a big gap of uninsured Georgians, and it's a major, major problem, especially for a state with a budget of this kind of surplus. So. Um, as much as we're hearing from the governor and the speaker, we're also hearing from a lot of Democrats that all of these ideas, yes, they've opened the door and they use the word expansion sometimes. Um, it's not enough, Democrats say. And Democrats are going to be running as hard as the Republicans are toward 2024 to say, if the Democrats are in charge, this is what it would look like. You would expand Medicaid, no questions asked. You would spend that surplus on uh, universal pre-K on uh, mandatory kindergarten. Those are things that you'll start to hear from from Democrats. Yeah, and the Democrats will, Greg, have a response to the governor's state of the state. Um, I, I don't know who's been selected to give that response. Yeah, they'll have a response early afternoon usually, and they will talk about mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion. Yeah, they will sure. say that $16 billion in reserves can easily float the the cost of Medicaid expansion. Um, this is why it's so hard, though, right now, because when you have, if, if you're a Democrat, it, it, because you're in the minority, you, the governor's budget's going, the governor's agenda is going to be budget driven. And that's one vote, right? So, so Democrats will get one vote on the budget. And even if there are things about the budget they hate, there'll be a lot of things about the budget that will be really hard to vote against, right? Uh, there'll be raises and there'll be law enforcement raises and there'll be projects and their districts and things like that. And so, um, you know, Democrats will, will, will use their time to say that they're, they have issues. They, they wish that the governor included more things in his budget, like Medicaid expansion. But in the end, most of those Democrats will end up voting for the budget because it's so politically difficult not to. Greg, you, you are, uh, spend a lot of time talking, and Patricia, you do as well, uh, talking to uh, people surrounding the governor and to the governor himself often. What, what are you hearing from them 
about how Kemp is thinking through the uh, notion of a Medicaid expansion. Is, is it something that they're giving a lot of thought to, or are they just kind of playing it safe, being cautious, waiting to see what the legislature does? Well, if he wanted to close the door on that bill, he would have done it right now, right? He, he would have either used this speech or in some venue on a TV appearance or an interview with someone like me or, or in a statement or a tweet. He would have just said, hey, I, this is not something I'm, I'm interested in. Um, so, yeah, I think he's playing it safe. It doesn't mean he's going to support it in the end. But what I've continuously been told is this is an issue they're watching. They're looking at very closely. They feel like folks around Governor Kemp feel like he won election twice on a campaign of not expanding Medicaid, even when his opponents made that central to their, Stacey Abrams made it central to her campaigns in 2018 and 2022. But at the same time, there's also the political reckoning that's coming. You know, if if Joe Biden wins another term, he's unlikely to extend Governor Kemp's waiver, his his, his own program for a work requirement uh, or an education requirement attached to uh, getting a very limited medical expansion. And if someone else wins, if, if the former President Donald Trump wins, he wants to do away with, with uh, he wants to repeal Obamacare. We don't know how far that will go, but it's very rocky waters ahead. So a lot of Republicans I talked to, including some within Kemp's orbit, are tired of getting pummeled by Democrats over the refusal to expand Medicaid. And now there's an alternative that has gotten very little support, right? Only about 2,000 or so people yeah. have signed up for, for Kemp's plan. So there's an opening. Patricia, let's step away from the speech for just a minute and address um, a story that uh, is getting a good amount of attention. Uh, sports betting is back. A Senate panel yesterday uh, approved a measure that could go to the full Senate. Um, you know, sports betting has been on the agenda for a long time, quite some time now. It never is a, uh, it manages to pass. But all of a sudden, here it comes again. I'm certain that's not something Governor Kemp wants to talk about today. Uh, we don't expect him to address sports betting today. I was joking with somebody in the halls yesterday. I'm like, it's like the Braves in the 1980s that they're saying this could be the year. This could be the year. And eventually the Braves did win. We'll see what happens with sports betting, which ironically the Braves are uh, squarely behind. The All of the sports teams in the state are, are supporting sports betting. It's a perennial issue. There were loads of lobbyists in the hallway yesterday. And it's the first, it looks like it could be the first uh bill out of the gate for the state senate uh which is a really big deal fascinating fascinating all right um patricia you're going to stay with us uh because in a minute we're going to play the interview that you and greg did with speaker john burns greg has already moved toward uh, uh setting up for the governor's speech in what will be it always is every year patricia you know it the most crowded press box of, of early in the session. Lots of people who don't usually go to the Capitol are there, and you have to try to elbow your way through to get a position to watch the speech. Greg and Patricia, we need to let you go so that you can get in place for the State of the State address. But when we return, Chris Christie drops out of the presidential race, not without controversy, as a hot mic moment lets us in on his real thoughts about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. We'll talk about that and the debate between Haley and DeSantis ahead of the Iowa caucuses with the AJC's Adam Van Brimmer. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. 
A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Political Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. We're joined now by Adam Van Brimmer, Savannah Bureau Chief for the AJC. Adam, we should point out, you and I came on board the AJC at just about the same uh, time, kind of beefing up for uh, a big election year, also adding coverage that you give us so brilliantly down in uh, Savannah. It's kind of fun to be a part of the AJC, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. Sure is, Bill. And, you know, it seems to me like they had a, a pretty good run of, of really good hires right there at once. Yeah. At least <laughs> from, from our well, in your case, I'll say that's absolutely true. But it's more than fun. It's also really meaningful because the AJC is doing yes. a lot of really important work these days. So, Adam, let's we're going to talk a little bit about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, which I think, frankly, uh, I'll make my first comment about it, it was a food fight that we learned very little substantively from. But we, I think we have to start with the event that took place a couple hours before the debate. Chris Christie, who's been under pressure for some time now to drop out of the uh, race for the Republican nomination for president because he wasn't gaining a lot of traction. There was a sense that Nikki Haley was, that all he would do, especially in New Hampshire, was uh, take votes away from her as she moves within single digits in polling of Donald Trump. So finally yesterday, Chris Christie uh, said he was dropping out of the race. Adam, let's just play something that was not part of his speech, but a hot mic moment in which we may have learned more about Chris Christie's feelings than what he said in his speech. Here it is. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. Because she hasn't even been challenged. She's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And he's, gonna, he's still going to carry out, right? Yes. Always. I, t- you know, I talked to De- DeSantis called me petrified that I would... He's probably getting out of Iowa. That's all that we was on the hot mic. Somebody turned it off realizing what was happening. Um, So a couple things that we should say about that. Uh, Apparently, DeSantis called him, he says, petrified that he would endorse uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, But also, it was interesting to hear him with whoever he was talking to uh, say that he expects Nikki Haley to, quote, get smoked in New Hampshire. Um, I don't know. That, I mean, if the, if he really believes that, then dropping out uh, doesn't seem to be doing the kind of favor for Nikki Haley that her people think he's doing. Especially given the timing, right? As he drops out right before the debate and it sets the stage for something that really Haley didn't take advantage of. And that's the, that's the opportunity to claim that mantle as hey, Trump is unfit for office. I'm the person to do it, to take that Chris Christie kind of message and and run with it and become that candidate in a head-to-head plus an, plus an empty podium moment to, to really take that step toward challenging Trump and, and quit kind of you know tiptoeing and dancing and do what all these Republican 
candidates have been doing for months now of, of we want to position ourselves to challenge Trump without actually maybe ticking anybody off along the way. Yeah, I, I also thought it was interesting that Christie's observation was, quote, she's not up to this. Um, he then goes on to say she's 20 points behind Trump. Um, I, I, he's not talking about New Hampshire because the polling shows it much closer. I suppose he's talking about Iowa, although I don't know that. But it is interesting to hear someone who's run for president a couple times now talk about a candidate not being up to it. Um, and what I mean by that is we certainly know that running for governor, as Nikki Haley did and winning, and Ron DeSantis did and winning, is a whole different um, ball game from running for president of the United States. It's you're on a completely different playing field. You are scrutinized in ways that you are not in uh, even a intensely competitive uh, governor's race. And we we've known for a while now that Ron DeSantis um, has struggled to make that transition. Uh, Christie insists that Nikki Haley's in the same ballpark with him on that, uh, which I think is interesting because Nikki Haley has won a lot of praise for in past debate performances, outperforming, being the adult in the room and the like. But I, but I think it's interesting to hear Christie claim he doesn't think she's up to the task. Yeah, she certainly has the portfolio, right? She's, she's led a state, uh, led a state at a time that was a crucial moment for that state and, and seen that state have some prosperity economically and and in some uh, social issues, obviously, she served in the United Nations. Everything about her portfolio says that she is, if not for sure up for the task, certainly has positioned herself to be there. So for him to say that, obviously, we, we don't think that it was done in a way that it was supposed to get out. It was a hot mic moment. But really, it, it is very odd. And if Haley is not up to the moment, and I think it's pretty obvious that we've seen that DeSantis is maybe a cycle or two away from being up to the moment to run like that, then, then who is, is what is Christie's motivation for saying it, for dropping out at such a, a late hour? I just don't understand where Christie's mind is. Um, one other quick thing uh, about Chris Christie's uh, speech yesterday. Um, it seemed pretty clear uh, because he addressed it directly that to a certain extent, he is continuing to atone as a Catholic, <laughs> feeling the guilt for having dropped out of the 2016 race when he did, and then very quickly endorsing Donald Trump. And he actually said in his speech yesterday, it's a decision he regrets to this day, and that it was an example of putting personal ambition over the good of the country. I thought that was a fascinating uh admission by Chris Christie. When he was on our show, we asked him about that endorsement back in 2016, and he certainly wasn't quite as clear in saying what he said as what he said yesterday. It's odd to hear that from any politician, right? Because that's, that's why they're in politics. There's very few true public service, public servant-minded individuals out there now, particularly at that level. I was reading a Michael Lewis book and the name of the book is escaping me, but it is about the, the start of the Trump administration. And that book starts with Chris Christie and the, the days and the months after Christie withdrew from that race and joined the Trump campaign. And it paints a very, 
that paints a picture that is very true to what you're saying right now of how uncomfortable Christie was, how much a mistake he felt he had made. And that really, I think, is what drove him to run this time. And again, I just have to sit there and scratch my head and say, why drop out? Why now? Uh, money is obviously always a factor, but you'd like to think that there's a different motivational f- motivation behind it. And you'd like to think it would be a motivation that would wound Trump. But well, I don't see that right now. Well, I, I would say I, I have to say I do think that's what Christie uh, decided, that um, staying in the race was only going to enable Trump. Uh, because um, it would split the votes. Remember that we have to always remember that in New Hampshire, you have an open primary. Um, Independents, Democrats, Republicans can basically cast ballots any way they want to for any candidate. And, And so I do think Christie was aware finally, because he's been getting this pounded into his head for a long time by moderate Republicans who want an alternative to Trump, that he was only going to split those non-Trump votes uh, that would hurt Nikki Haley in the long run. But all that said, um, this came, his announcement, about three hours before that CNN uh, debate. Haley uh, going head-to-head with DeSantis. We'll play a little sound from it, but before we do, your general impression of that debate, Adam. Well, I, I read a, a description of it from a Trump campaign person who I think summed it up pretty well. And that was he called it a junior varsity losers bracket debate. And that is kind of how it felt to me. Like neither one of them was really there for the varsity game. Neither one of them was really there to challenge Trump. None of them were really there to take him on and, and do what John Ossoff did a couple of years ago with David Perdue, right? Where it was a it was it was debating an empty podium, and uh, I don't know why they continue to be so standoffish in terms of really going after Trump, but that's what we got. Um, here's a good example of that. Both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, as they have throughout the campaign, as have other Republican candidates, sort of tiptoed around uh, Donald Trump, um, uh, except for Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, who is the junior Donald Trump in this race. But here's an example of how you criticize Trump without really going after Trump. This is Nikki Haley. His way is not my way. I don't have vengeance. I don't have vendettas. I don't take things personally. For me, it's very much about no drama, no whining, and getting results and getting them done. So I don't think that President Trump is the right president to go forward. I think it's time for a new generational leader that's going to go and make America proud again. You know, it's interesting, Adam. Um, She has said throughout the campaign that she thinks Donald Trump was the right president at the right time. And yet now she's kind of uh, making a turn and being more openly critical of him. Um, He's he's drama. He's whining. He's not about getting things done. Um, He's uh, not the right president to go forward. Um, And yet, as um, as as Chris Christie certainly has said, neither Nikki Haley nor Ron DeSantis want to go head to head uh, against Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and you, you played it, a Haley clip, but a clip that really struck me was DeSantis actually mentioned the whole idea of trying to get through all his legal battles next year and how that might be a detriment. 
But right there is your opportunity to say he's unfit for office. And DeSantis just left it lying there. They both declined to really to, to try to crack that nut. And it's it, it's mystifying. And at the same time, you've got Trump on another network doing a town hall where he's not he's not holding back against the two of them. It's very odd. Yeah, we should point out that Donald Trump uh, counter-programmed the CNN debate by doing a town hall with Fox News in which he got softball questions that let him just uh, ramble on uh, about uh, all of the things that he has in the past lied about. He was able to attack his opponents. But I did not watch that, but the people who have reported on it said he was a surprisingly subdued Donald Trump uh, in that town hall. But why not? He was certainly not facing tough questions. (laughs) That's right. And, and, you know, it's one of those things that these it's a campaign rally, right? It's a political rally. Let's call it what it is, is is he was able to 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 get Fox News to pay to stage a political rally for him. And the real question is, is at this point, is anybody watching that that isn't a diehard Trump supporter? So is it? Is it anything that's going to win him any votes or is it just a matter of him tweaking his opponents and, and getting himself positioned to go against Biden in November? Going back to that Republican debate for a couple of minutes, a lot of people uh, hoped that given it was only two people on the stage, Haley and DeSantis, that there would be real substantive conversation between the two, the difference way, the differences they have on important issues. Of course, a lot of it was a food fight. I don't know how many times each of them called the other a liar. Nikki Haley came prepared with a website that she promoted over and over about DeSantis lying. But I will say, um, considering the fact that we know immigration is going to be a big issue that particularly Republicans are going to try to push, uh, blaming uh, President Biden for what they call chaos at the border, there was an exchange on immigration that I think is worth listening to. So let's play first Haley and then DeSantis on that issue. You have to deport them. And the reason you have to deport them is they're cutting the line. You've got people who have done this and tried to go through the right way. You can't have them go and jump the line and suddenly do that. And that is actually what will get them to stop coming, is when they do realize they get to the wall and they have to turn around and go back. It's a dangerous process of what happens for them to try and migrate. The number of people that will be amnestied when I'm president is zero. We cannot do an amnesty in this country. Uh, First of all, it's going to do is cause more people to want to come illegally. So you got to enforce the law. It's got to be consistent. People got to know it's there. And we have to remember that Governor DeSantis is the guy who started the uh, uh, whole uh, effort to uh, pack people into airplanes, immigrants who had come to his state um, illegally, and ship them off to First Martha's Vineyard, uh, then to other destinations. Uh, it was quickly followed by the governor of Texas doing the same thing. But um, I think we should also point out that the exchange on immigration comes on the same day that the House uh, launched an official investigation of Homeland Se- Secretary Mayorkas, who they blame for the problems at the border. That's, you just used the right word there, Bill, is everybody's looking for somebody to blame. 
and we need a legislative solution on immigration reform. We've needed for needed it for twenty plus years, and we talk a lot about Saxby Chambliss, right, and, and making that bipartisan push all those years ago. But it's a it's a wedge issue. It's a, it's an issue that with the wall and some other things that Trump helped propel him to victory and helped energize people to vote who hadn't voted in previous elections. And as long as that is the case, uh, the Republicans are are going to continue to pick at that issue, uh, especially in a year where, once again, they're going to need a lot of people that aren't longtime voters to get back out and vote again, more than likely for Donald Trump. So, Adam, we've, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but but uh, we've got you down there in Savannah. Um, are people in your community talking about the presidential race at this point, or is it still something that's kind of off in the distance? And if they are talking about it, what are you hearing from them? It's off in the distance, but at the same time, you know, I do attend a lot of luncheons and meetings and other things that involve some of the uh, the elected officials and some of the for lack of a better way to put it, the movers and shakers in town. And they know, obviously, that I'm involved with Politically Georgia AM, the former Jolt, and are I'm always asking me kind of about it, especially as as the team looks at the caucuses and the primaries and such as that. And they're really interested if anybody is going to make a push against Trump. And more than anything, they're curious to know when people get in the voting booths, which we're going to know here pretty soon, there's a lot of people. If you've been paying attention to Iowa and New Hampshire, you hear a lot of interviews with people who were, they say they were Trump people, but they're really uncomfortable with with whatever, you know, whether it's January 6th or, or some of the things he's done since. And you get the sense that when they actually get in the voting booth, they may not vote for Trump. They may vote for somebody else. Well, so we'll that's what everybody's talking about. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on no. you there. Uh, we'll get our first test of that Monday night when Iowans go to their caucus locations. Uh, Trump's polling numbers are off the chart. We'll see um, if he does as well as the polling suggests. Adam Van Brimmer, thank you so much. Just ahead, Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein's full sit-down interview with Speaker of the House John Burns. He gave him a look at his plans for the 2024 session. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners, If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. You'll get all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. And you'll have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you'll always know what's really going on. Georgia's 2024 legislative session is underway. Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy sat down yesterday with House Speaker John Burns for an exclusive in-depth discussion 
about his plans for what he would like to accomplish this year. I'll start with the uh, with one of the biggest, int- most intriguing questions in the legislative session, which is, is an Arkansas-style Medicaid expansion really on the table? Is this something that you really think could be an option to get done this year? That's an easy one, Greg. We're looking at every option. We're looking at, we're gathering facts. As, as Butch and, and the committee has done all summer, uh, we will continue to do that. I'll stress, though, we're, we're certainly... We are in 100% support of the Governor's Pathways Program and how it's moving forward and how it will move forward. But we are, we're looking at lots of options when it comes to health care, certainly with licensure, uh, new medical school, new dental school as it impacts uh, health care across the state, access, affordability for Patients and providers. I, I, I like that part of what we're talking about. And Butch has been big, a big com- proponent of making sure that we address both sides of that equation. Because, I mean, isn't that what helps make it accessible to different parts of the state? For more than a decade, members of your caucus, and I think probably you too, opposed any sort of broad Medicaid expansion. How do you sell it to those opponents um, and, you know, again, things have changed. Now 40 other states, including many deep red states, have expanded Medicaid. So if, if you get along further in that, in that argument, how do you convince fellow Republicans that something that they opposed five years ago is something they should consider now? Well, we looked at, at the trajectory of the program over the last few years, the last um, number of years on the federal level, number one. Um, number two, I think we look at the fiscal aspects of it is um, how, to, how, from a Georgia standpoint, how it could play into our health care system here. It, what's the impact on our state? What's the potential impact on the consumers of health care in the state, the providers of health care in the state? And again, I'll go back to this point. We deal with the facts. My members deal with the facts. The House deals with the facts. And we'll look at it, and we'll, uh, we'll, make, some good, we'll make some good choices. But um, it's also, we know that it, we also deal with that same component, what's politically possible. And so we'll look at that. We're getting into a presidential election year here, and you have raised uh, this week the possibility about making some changes to the way Georgians are voting, what they see in the ballot booth. Um, are you confident that Georgia elections are safe right now and reliable? And what changes do you want to see? I do feel like Georgia, Georgia elections are safe and reliable. But again, we know that the elections process is an ongoing process of, of as anything that we do should be made better over time. Um, and we do that all the time. We pass legislation a year or two later. We come back and, if you will, tweak that legislation, make substantive changes. And many times it's um, to go back and ensure that the legislative intent was a part of how the the issue has been delivered to the public and impacts the public. Um, we saw this morning, I mentioned this morning, that we have some, some good information that Georgians have confidence in our election system. I mean, there's, there's, always, um, there's always disputes about anything, and that's, that's just human nature, if you will. But um, I believe we are in a good place. I, I, I th- I'll say again, I think the uh, Secretary of State and his team, it's, it's going to be good for them on some of the things we're proposing. They can focus on elections, on, on that um, transparency and the reliability and the confidentiality of elections. Uh, one of our most sacred rights, the right to a sacred ballot. There's, there have been calls from activists to transition back to 
paper ballots, either hand-marked paper ballots or some kind of um, actual physical mark on the ballot instead of electronic voting machines that Georgia uses now. Is the House going to be open to that this year? Are you open to that? We'll, again, we'll talk about We'll, we'll talk about anything that folks, when they come in and testify, when we have a when we have committee hearings, they want to talk about. I know they've been here in the Capitol um, with speaking to the elections board. But yes, but we we believe that when when we change that secure paper, from uh, go away from the QR code, that they will give the um, voters of this state a they'll be they'll be more comfortable. I will. They would be more comfortable if we were on uh, watermark paper that we know that is a secure paper that is, all the counties in the state are utilizing we, as we look to have uniformity. And I believe then there will be a confidence there that we'll strike a happy medium between a traditional paper ballot that some want as we use technology to help us ensure that we have an accurate, fair elections that um, when I cast a vote, I believe my vote is counted just as I cast it. And that's also a responsibility of mine to make sure I inspect my ballot before I put it through the, uh, the ballot uh, counting device. One more election-related re- question for me. You said that, uh, that you want to give the state election board more autonomy. Um, what, what does that mean to you? Does that mean, because I know the state election board voted just a few weeks ago to, for more clarity over their, uh, over their responsibilities, over their jurisdiction. Does that mean more power to investigate Secretary of State Raffensperger? Does that mean more power to, to launch other probes? And I mean, what does autonomy mean? First and foremost, the elections board is the primary, has a primary responsibility of addressing issues that voters have and how they address those issues in a timely manner. I know that the uh, former board chair, Judge Duffy, responded personally to many of those um, questions about, well, you know, why, why, um, what, why was, how was my voting on the local level? Um, why did it go down exactly like, exactly like it did? Was my vote counted? Was my, du- my vote duplicated? And he was able to answer those questions. And, and I think what we're looking at from that autonomy part of it is to ensure that he has a staff, the, the chair has a staff, has an executive director. It needs to be set up like any other professional office in this capital or in, in the private world in y'all's offices with the AJC, that there's a staff on hand. Um, do, do we intend to investigate the Secretary of State for, for something? No, that's not the intent. It's the intent is that the legislative intent was that the uh, State Elections Board would have some independence and from it, when it came to their mission, and I believe that's where we'll get to, we won't overstep into the responsibilities of the Secretary of State. Uh, we won't do that. I think we'll be very respectful. But we're going to hear from the Secretary of State as well when we when we this discussion begins in committee as we look to move forward with um, making some changes. Transitioning to something y'all had worked on last session, creating that DA Oversight Commission to have yeah. state oversight of locally elected district attorneys. Uh, the state Supreme Court has said they don't have the authority to write those rules. What are what rules are y'all going to put in place for these DAs? We think, Patricia, that we did a good job with the rules um, as, that we put in place um, that are in the that are in the statute. Um, I think what was the concern for the Supreme Court? They didn't want to get involved in 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 in, in the um, in the selection process, if you will. So um, I think I think what we will do will be a simple fix: is just take the Supreme Court out of the mix and uh, allow, and then 
and I think we'll find. I think they will find, and I'm sure more than likely, um, in the way the world works now, that the statute may be challenged again. But I believe that we will have solved the Supreme Court's issue with the legislation, and we'll be able to move forward with a good policy that I really believe is timely. It's got nothing to do with what's happened and what's occurred in the last few days. Y'all have heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. When I put up my right hand and swore to be sworn into this office, I agreed to support the Constitution, the laws of the, the U, Georgia, the U.S. Constitution, laws of the state. I believe that the DAs in this state did the same thing. And it doesn't give me the, the authority to refuse to enforce whatever laws I don't like. What it does as a citizen, it gives me the right, as we hear all the time outside of these doors, to come back and make changes in the laws of the state. And I think that's how our system works. And I think the judges have oversight. We have oversight from ethics commissions. And I think that's only simply what we're asking from the from the district attorneys. Can I do a quick follow-up? You mentioned what's happened over the last several days. And I believe you're talking about Fulton DA. Fonnie Willis. Um, you had released a statement earlier this year that you felt like she had not done anything by that time to warrant her investigation um, or especially her removal from office. Has this, Have the events of this week changed your mind? Do you still feel like she is um, doesn't need to be investigated at this point? Well, I think the process when we when we stand when we stand the prosecutorial oversight board back up and everything's approved, they'll make that decision. That's not for me to make. I want or we would just want to enable the the oversight board to work and do its work. And if they decide that's something they'd look, like to look into, that's fine with me. Last year, sixteen House Republicans doomed a school voucher measure, a, a voucher expansion um, that many conservatives, including yourself, have have supported in the past. Do you see any signs of change? Um, from those 16 House Republicans, or do you think that the bill needs to be changed to help win those over? Maybe some of both, Greg. Um, what I asked the proponents of the bill, of the voucher bill to do, was to go out and make sure that those 16 members understand, understood everything about the bill. Go out and talk to them. Explain what they're trying to accomplish, explain what the bill accomplishes. And um, then certainly if there's some concerns that can be addressed by those members, because I would tell you there were significant concerns from those members they never would have voted no on the bill. So and whether, whether those concerns, came, they came from their local communities, and that's what we're elected to do, to represent our districts. So uh, what the proponents needed to do was go out and educate the members and certainly go into those local communities and help them. And, and I believe if we do that, if they, if, and I think a lot of them have, have been contacted and had worked with them over the summer, that um, there's a realization of what's been trying to be accomplished. And, and also, I'll, I'll also add, I believe also that the position we're in from the state perspective of supporting public education in the state is a strong factor toward relieving the fears from local school systems. But the final thing I'll tell you on that subject matter is this. If families are in a school system and their children are, are attending a failing school, then it's not fair. It's not fair to the children in that family. It's not fair to their future. That's when I believe that there should be some sort of um, option to help those children because, look, it's about quality of life. Talked about it this morning with literacy. 
And um, if if we can't if we can't educate our young people, then we will we'll we'll not be the powerhouse we are in economic development and all all the health care won't progress anything else. And so um, we do not need to commit children to um, a lifetime of, of um, concern problems because they were in a system that was a failing school. Uh, one more question on schools. Um, the governor's talked about school safety, laid out his, uh, his preference to uh, get money to schools to hire additional resource officers or use it however they feel like they need to. The lieutenant governor has talked about a program to arm teachers to let to give them an annual bonus to carry a weapon um, as a teacher to defend their schools in case of attack. Where do you come down on those two issues? And is the House going to take the lead on on any piece of of those two? Yeah, the House is going to continue to take a lead on school safety, like we and we have in the past, where we've invested. Um, substantial resources with our local partners in the school systems to um, make sure that schools are secure. Uh, we believe we've done a good job of that. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of ensuring that we go back out because of the success we've had in Georgia from a resource perspective to go back and assist our local governments, our local school systems with resource officers in every school. Now, and then we're smart enough to say, look, if you've solved that problem, if you have a resource officer there, you can, but you're still going to receive that money, you can apply it somewhere else to ensure that the students, your students are safe. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. And, you know, the only thing I'll say about the, um, uh, we, we, a few years ago, uh, I think we gave Georgians the, the opportunity, school systems, the opportunity to um, have um, Last year, the House passed legislation that made anti-Semitism and hate crime. That same legislation stalled in the, in the Senate. What message do you have for Georgia Senate Republicans, Democrats, about that measure? Pass the bill. Get it done. Simple as that. All right. We're, we're willing to hear. We've, we've listened. Um, our members have listened, but um, and and I think they've they've done substantial work on the bill over there. But it, you know, some things rise above politics. This is one. Pass the bill. Now, speaking of politics, it is an election year. Um, it's your first election year as the Speaker of the House, with your caucus all up for re-election. Those who are choosing to run for election, what level of responsibility do you feel like you have to? have an agenda that they can kind of successfully get elected on in the rural areas, in um, swing districts, uh, more vulnerable members. What will you do over the next several months to um, kind of put them in the best position? Is that something that is on your mind even? I don't even know. No, no different than anything. Look, I'm, I'm, I believe we should come here to do the right thing. Um, and... Um, I think we should do the right thing in the first year of the session or the second year of the session doing doing um doing election year. My dear friend and mentor Jack Hill said, "John, go home to your district, do your job, and the and the rest will take care of itself." And that's what I believe. You go home and do your public service. You engage in your community. You come up here and and you're engaged and and for positive change in the state where it needs to be. Tweaks on things we did last year, there before. Uh, and so I, I don't think we don't have any. Well, we talked about it this morning. We don't have any huge initiatives that we've not already spoken about. That we're not. That we, we would like to get some things across the finish line. That I know you guys care about. We care about it. It's the right thing to do. And we think that um, 
we know that, you know, sometimes, uh, as I like to say, Rome wasn't built in a day. So sometimes things take a little bit longer. So we hope that some items that we had that were important to me, and I think important to Georgians, are over in the Senate. I, I feel very confident that we can work with them to um, get them back over in the House and we can, we can get them onto the governor's desk. Speaker Burns, when we talk about the 2024 election, where do you stand on any of the candidates? Uh, do you plan to endorse a Republican candidate for, for president? Um, how do you see the field right now? Well, I, read, I, I, read, I re- watch the news and listen to the polls just as you do. Uh, here's where I am. I'm, gonna, I'm going to do a lot of listening, as I have been doing, in evaluation of the candidates. And then, um, then when, when the Republican Party uh, endorses or decides on a candidate, then that's where I'll be. So you'll wait till there's a nomination. I will. Do you see Republicans beginning to warm to the idea of Donald Trump as the nominee again, or do you still think there's an appetite for an alternative? Greg, you probably have to ask someone else, someone else more particularly about national politics. I'm a little bit more focused on our election, electing these uh, members, and then certainly y'all didn't ask me, but I'll tell you that I'm, I'm certainly um, I'm certainly um, encouraged by the decision in, in the redistricting by Judge Jones. And um, certainly now as we look at the districts, how they've some of them have changed a little bit to make sure our candidates are in the best possible situation to uh, to uh, be successful and be reelected. Because we have some really, really good members. I'm going to tell you some very talented members that we are very we are very fortunate in Georgia to have these kind of people representing all of us and our interest in Georgia. And um, I'm excited about that. There's, there's great members on both sides of the aisle. But I'm, I'll just say that um, we have some really good members in the Georgia House, and they're making a difference. They're making a difference. And I think we're working pretty good together. Sometimes we disagree, but that's always the case. But I think we're working pretty good together and we get some good things done for Georgia. I was going to ask you about redistricting, but now I don't have to. Um, in terms of what you hear when you go home, what are you hearing from your community? What's on those voters' minds? What do you feel like you need to go home with at the end of this session and feel like you answered that? And I think mental health is something that we hear a lot from voters. Um, is that something also that you think you'll be able to, to bring across the finish line, particularly when it comes to funding, additional funding for mental health? And those are actually two separate questions. So. They are. Well, a dental school will help me when I go home for <laughs> yeah. reelected. But I, at Georgia Southern. There, there's mm-hmm. that. There's that. Yes. Um, the House continues to champion mental health issues. You may say it's in our DNA right now, and as it should be. And there are significant challenges there that, um, you know, even in the mental health professional community, we're learning on how we can address some of those issues. I'm greatly encouraged that, that Commissioner Kevin Tanner is now back on the job. Uh, I know of no stronger advocate and someone who understands the challenges on delivering mental health services in our state from the public side than Kevin Tanner. Um, he's a... Uh, He's, he's been an architect in the House um, when he was a member, and he certainly now is in, in the right place to make a difference. I believe that we can pull together with him, uh, certainly with our educational opportunities through the university system. And again, I said it, I said it a while ago when we were in the other, other event. You don't have to have a Ph.D. to uh, help address mental health issues. Um, so... We need to make sure we have a workforce in place that helps folks um, um, get the attention they need. 
We also see the counseling services that are a part of that whole whole concern, whether it be in our, our school systems. And, um, and we're, we will be a part of strengthening that. We have a residency program in Savannah from, uh, and um, with, with Mercer University in conjunction with Memorial Health. So I think we're addressing those needs. I think it's getting attention. And, you know, and, and we, didn't, we did not back off from where we did not move from where we were from an institutionalization perspective to where we are now in one or two days. So it's going to take us time to get back to where we can address the needs of um, folks that are that have concerns from a from mental health perspective that um, we can help address those needs. And I think, I think there's a realization of that. And that's what's important. There's a realization of that, and I think the funding will also follow that realization. Big Burns, you've had the gavel now for a little bit over a year. How have you personally dealt with the new challenges? You've seen this job up close for a very long time, but now you're in this job and for a year, uh, for a year now. How have, how have you dealt with the challenges of, of being um, the leader of the House, one of the most powerful people in Georgia, but dealing with all the pressure from all sides on, it seems like, every issue? I'm going to say this and I'm going to go to something else and come back to it. <laughs> I like people. And so I don't think you can do the job if you don't like people. But what I've always been fortunate to be a part of is a team that's really strong, really strong. And on both sides of the aisle in the House, we have a strong, strong team that we're all working together and pulling together on on the majority of the issues that we deal with. That's powerful. The other thing that's been very powerful for me is um, having a staff that cares just as much as I do, not just about their job, but about Georgians and the difference we're making. Uh, that's what we talk about when we sit down, and it's not about, hey, well, let's get us some more votes, to your point a while ago, uh, is, will this help with the elections process? Well, that may, the pol- political lens may come up, but the first lens is viewed through is what's good for Georgians and what's good for our fellow man and our neighbor. That's the first thing we talk about. But bringing back on staff and our chief of staff, England, who has served this state for 18 years in the House, um, he understands the issues that Georgians have. Um, Certainly from a caring perspective, um, he had that when he came here. But then from a perspective of understanding the appropriations process, the budget and how we how we make help make that work? He is he will be a tremendous assistant help to um, to Chairman Hatchett, who's done a great job chairing the Appropriations Committee when Terry left. So, and then my staff in here that's been retained, um, but I have another key key element to that is my wife Dale. She um, she helps keeps me focused, and certainly we have. She has a strong set of values about what's right and wrong. And I always say uh, my job was always easy over the years. When, when I, I had a few employees, she had a couple of hundred, uh, hundred or so employees in her school system and that she had to uh, work with. And then she had to deal with the parents and everything else. So she's, she was a master at it, and I've learned from her over the years. And certainly I'll go back to that. Don't get in these jobs if you don't like people. And I just genuinely like people and like to hear from people and like to see where their concerns are and see if we can help address them. What's the hardest lesson you've learned? Like the, the number one, the, just the toughest thing you've learned since you took the gavel? That I can't help some folks that I'd like to help. 
because of the well, the folks or because of well, sometimes it's you know sometimes it's a it's a it's an issue of dollars. Sometimes the system does not allow us to. Um, there's some things we deal with all the time that would be impactful for people, but it's a federal issue. And I guess that's probably one of the things that disturbs me the most is um, the inadequacy right now from the federal side of the equation. I think Georgia does a pretty darn good job. Now, we know who to call if someone in, in this capital is responsible for an issue with a constituent. But sometimes it takes a while when you deal with the federal issue because it's really bogged down in many cases. And it, and it puts people squarely behind some people you care about. That's where my disappointment because I see how they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And you'd like to make a difference in their lives, you know, whether it be a helping a student in school, whether it be a financial reason, you would like to help immediately. And then sometimes that's, that's what bothers me about because you do see lots, you hear from lots of folks, lots of issues. And, um, and again, I don't think you need to be in these jobs if you don't like people, if you don't want to help them. So, do we have a, a set of rapid fire we questions do. you wanted to move to? Your, one of your one of your trusty aides suggested <laughs> oh, that we go to a very fun <laughs> round of rapid fire questions. These are easy questions. We'll be going back and forth. And <laughs> oh, all right, for uh, a few. Hey, real quick question though before we go to that. Um, one last political policy questions. We have to ask culture war type questions, and a lot of times folks don't like the term culture wars. But is there any appetite at all? to revisit any abortion-related legislation this session? I know we're still waiting for the ruling, for the final ruling. No, I think we're in a good place right now, and certainly we're, that's where we'll, uh, we'll remain for now. Until gotcha. We, okay. Just make it Okay, so that all aside, rapid-fire questions. I'll start off with it, and me and Patricia will go back and forth with a few. Um, if I don't know the answer, I have an answer for me. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one place you've never been to that you wish you could have gone to, you want to travel to? Oh, wow, I'm going to do this, too. I'm going to go to Alaska. Oh, yeah. cool. That's, that's doable. Yeah. I want to see the glaciers. Yeah, I want, yeah. before they all melt. <laughs> <laughs> there is it. <laughs> what do you do for fun when you're not working? Uh, work. <laughs> <laughs> We're always engaged in something. I, I, you know, um, my family's always um, been workers growing up in the country, and, um, you know, um, I guess for fun, it's been for us. It's been attending. Um, for me, it has been. I think I know it has been for Dale as well. Is um, you know enjoying the lives of our children, and being involved with them growing up, and certainly now with our grandchildren. Don't, don't have time. Somebody says, "Do you play golf?" I said, "No, I can't waste four hours." <laughs> <laughs> Favorite sports team? Braves. Go Braves. Who do you text? In Georgia Southern. Oh. Okay. Oh, oh, yes, you have to say it. Go Eagles. Um, who do you text the most? Do you text message? Do you use text messages? No, I don't do any technology. You know, they. I had a Twitter account, but they wouldn't let me use it. Now I have another You've one. You've got a new one now. So, you so, got a new one. So, <laughs> who I text the most? It, you know, it would probably be Dale. More than likely, but Once England, a week. England's rising fast. <laughs> He's rising fast. He bothers me all the damn time, so what could I have to bother answering back? Here's a hard one. Your, the, the, your favorite childhood memory? Probably going fishing with my mama. Oh. And maybe hunting with my daddy. Yeah. Mama would take me fishing and, um, and um, on a fairly regular basis, because she would fish with two or three poles at one time. She was an avid fisherman. <laughs> but then... Um, my dad was working, 
Um, and it was um, always a treat when he took time to take me hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, who would you have to a dinner party? Anybody living, living or passed on? Oh, yeah. Number one would be Jack Hill. Mm-hmm. Top of the list, he and Ruth Ann. Uh, they, would, um, they would have to be there. Um, I don't know. I guess and I'm thinking of it from that context. Context, and my brother Jerry, who's who's passed. But um, you know, I don't know. I'd like to go dinner with you guys. Let's do it. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Favorite meal. We're stumping him. <laughs> nah, fried chicken. I think probably okay, yeah. fried chicken. <laughs> we have to ask Coke or Pepsi. Um. RC Coke. Just kidding. <laughs> there's only one right answer. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. Go look in the refrigerator. No, I, I'm a Coke guy. Okay. Beer or wine? Oh, both. Both. And then favorite lawmaker. Favorite lawmaker. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Do I? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was Um... I want to. I want to answer that one. See if I can answer that one. Oh. I I I tell you, one of the lawmakers that I vastly, um, greatly respect. Don't always agree with him, but uh, I respect Brian Kemp because where he's brought this state, what he's been through with the state with COVID, and certainly was what he's been through with from a political perspective and, and that he's that how politics have impacted he and and Marty and that family and they've stayed strong with each other uh, I think on a um, and you know uh, a more recent um, stage I would say the governor um, the other one that that I am truly truly believe is one of the finest governors we've we've ever we've ever had is um, the governor deal just the quality of man he is from a from his personal um, life, of course, he was you know he was born down in my part of the world. He was born in Millen. He lived in Scriven County. His dad was a mm-hmm. was a county agent in Scriven County. And where ag teacher? Yeah, yeah. We didn't have county agents back then. Yeah, ag teacher. And then he was born in the hospital in Millen. They lived between Sylvania and Millen. But um, I think his life and and his perseverance when he came here when he ran. And certainly the the tr- the transformation when we got to know Governor Deal, the quality of man he was, um, and the same um, so that uh, that he proved and what they how they cared about the state, and that was just very impactful. I'm glad we asked. That. I know. Will I the House be in session on Fridays? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. Okay. We, no, we, we'll answer your question. I know y'all this, y'all have to put this. Mm-hmm. But uh, we know that we all have lives outside of this building, and our members do. They have children. They have jobs. And they need, they need an opportunity to um, carry on um, their other responsibilities. And, and, and the other part of it is you just need to break away from this for a little bit, take a deep breath sometimes, and, and gain a, a little different perspective. I think that's because we are citizen lawmakers and that's where we should remain and so i think that's um that's part of it but just respect for the families and and um i think we'll 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 have a schedule with the senate we're pretty close and they they need it as well 
it's good for their members. They have younger members. They have members with younger children. Um, and the second part of it is, I think um, it all it all helps us um, utilize our resources better. Um, I know from a media coverage, and that's good for letting people know what's going on here. So there's no, you know, we're very transparent. Y'all know that. No surprises. And, and yeah, and that's and you know, um, well, I won't say no. Hmm. Something. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go that far, Greg. But um, but certainly when we look at the resources it takes to to make this this work here in this capital, I think it's respectful of the people who work for the state in the offices, those that um. Um, that provides security here. Everything that we look at these days that it takes to make make things work, it's good to have a schedule. And, and we, we hope we can get a complete schedule for the session. Um, if not, it'll be pretty, it'll, it will be a, for a large part of it. But I think we'll get there on the, and hopefully we'll get there. And I think we could. The uh, majority leaders work really hard at it. Leader Gooch has worked at it. And uh, we're getting close. All right. Speaker Burns, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Remember that this session, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has more than a dozen reporters covering the Capitol and the biggest legislative issues they'll be addressing. We'll make sure you're informed about everything that's going on under the Gold Dome. By the way, do you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia? You can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show during the Friday Listener Mailbag segment. The number is 404-526-2527. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.